Joel chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And while you're working on that, my other uh, idea would be for you to also turn to Acts 2, Acts chapter 2. Actually, we'll be in two or three little segments in Acts. And um, that, that way you can kind of turn back and forth. So take a prayer card and stick it in one or the other. And, but we'll park in Joel chapter 2. I, I think this is interesting to me. Our world is kind of in the mode of saying to you and me who have some kind of a moral underpinning, just deal with it. It kind of seems like the public outcry sometimes these days. You're caught committing adultery, misusing public funds, plagiarizing material, just hire a PR spin doctor to justify or explain the behavior and go on about it. Moral and ethical failures happen so often in our culture that we're kind of not even surprised about it anymore or shocked. If anything does surprise us, it's someone who comes forth with an outright admission of guilt. Isn't that kind of true? Uh, in fact, it's kind of refreshing to see but we don't see very much of that. Uh, we, uh, especially those of us in the church, are dismissed as being kind of judgmental when we voice expectations for accountability or uh, any kind of consequences. And our culture just wants us to deal with it. Just deal with it. Get over yourself. Well, isn't it inter it's interesting to me that as I study uh, the culture around the time that the Bible was written, even, even the Old Testament, like the, the book of Joel, a, a similar attitude prevailed. A, a pretty similar outlook in ancient times as well. But God is going to ask us, how does God distinguish true repentance from false? And I believe the prophet Joel has at least a good answer for that question, I think uh, the prophet Joel is an unlikely source of study in, this, in the context of this springtime study we're doing on the great love of our Father God and the great love texts of the Bible. Interestingly, we've been in the New Testament. Now we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Next week, we'll study actually the 23rd Psalm and what it has to teach us about God's love. But isn't it interesting, in the middle of a prophetic portion of Scripture, in fact, I think you're going to be surprised when we get in the middle of this today from Joel 2, there's a passage that just reeks with judgment, and yet God's love drips between every verse. Um, it, it's actually wonderful. Jo Joel... Um, um, is one of the Old Testament minor prophets. Now, um, we call them the minor prophets not because they were less important than the major prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and those guys, but simply because their books are shorter. It just has to do with the length of the books. If you think they're minor in importance, then realize that there are more than 30 quotations in the New Testament from the minor prophets alone. Now, the, the New Testament quotes from the, from the major prophets as well. Uh, traditionally, this book has been dated as early as 837 BC. Um, so, but there's some question on that. That would make, um, that would make Joel a contemporary of King Joash that you can read about in Second Chronicles. And... Uh, 
there's a backdrop for this book that we can't miss. And uh, I read um, um, several of the chapters of it this week and I because I wanted to get the context of it since we're kind of moving around uh, the way we are. But the backdrop for the book is a cataclysmic locust infestation. Now, think about that. You've read about one of those. Uh, you've read about one of those in uh, Exodus. But this is another one. And uh, this locust infest infestation is, uh, has descended on Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Uh, locusts are voracious. And um, a swarm, a fairly decent swarm of them, uh, can result in utter destruction of crops and trees and other vegetation, which then results in famine, starvation, disease, those kinds of things. God has used locusts on more than one occasion, obviously, um, as instruments of divine judgment, like he did in the book of Exodus. But for his part, the prophet Joel is going to connect this horrific description of the locust plague by declaring a reminder that the day of the Lord is coming. And he's going to describe that day of the Lord. And he's going to ask the question, who can endure the day of the Lord? And then he's going to answer his own question. And that answer is really, really uh, important to us. No one, he's going to say, can withstand that day, but there's another option rather than accepting the judgment of God on the, on the great day of the Lord. So that's what we're going to go to. Uh, I think Steve has our microphone this morning. Steve, if you would go to Joel 2 and read verse 12 and 13. It'll get us kicked off. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Okay, we're gonna, um, if you wouldn't mind to just pass that to your friend. If, Cindy, would you mind to read the Genesis, the little Genesis verse that we've got there, which is I think from 34, uh, 37, 34, and we'll get to it in just a minute. Now, the, there is a word of hope that begins this passage. Even now. Don't you love that? How, how does yours start? Verse, uh, the, the verse that Steve first, the verse 12 that Steve first read. What are the first words of it? Same? Uh, I, I think there's one translation that says, yet even now. Uh, you catch how that's kind of a hopeful statement in the middle of some fairly scary things going on Yet even now. So what you and I need to be thinking about is what are these words of hope representing? Now, you and I read in the papers recently, this wasn't but a couple of weeks ago, as I recall, that um, a, 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 a person that was um, inebriated in one way or another was going the wrong way on I-35, as I recall, down around Norman, and ran into a motorcycle rider early in the morning, killing the motorcycle rider. Remember that story? How do you miss, unless you're pretty wasted, how do you miss those big red signs that say wrong way? I, I don't know. And it had a tragic effect. My dad, I, I run and I 
been thinking about something. I think about every week some other thing that Dad said that just cracks me up. And I was downtown Oklahoma City last weekend or sometime in the recent past. And you know how downtown Oklahoma City, there are all kinds of one-way streets. Um, I think they're kind of trying to change some of that. But, but if you're in an area where there's lots of one-way streets, I remember when I was first driving, Dad would be in the car and he would... He would say, kind of gently, but but slyly, he would say, uh, you don't want to go that way. And uh, he would then follow that by, if, if, if I was getting ready to turn onto a one-way street the wrong way, he'd say, uh, you don't want to do that. They're all coming back from that way. <laughs> They're all coming back from that way. That was just his way of saying, Dad, don't, turn, don't go that way. Um, <laughs> uh, so... It, what do I do, and one of the questions that kind of hangs over this passage for me, what do I do when I realize that I'm going the wrong way? Is it too elementary for me to say, turn around? <laughs> I think that's what the prophet is saying. Turn around. Uh, now, look, look at your uh, outline here. Repentance is called for, and repentance is always going to revolve, um, and I was trying to use an alliteration here, so, so bear with me, but a rotation, okay, a turning around, a rotation, often a 180, okay, a rotation and a return. Did you catch that in verse 12? A return. Come back to me, he says. Yet even now, Return to me with all your heart. With fasting, weeping, and mourning. We'll take those words apart here in just a minute. But the basics here are reorienting my life from sin the wrong way to God the right way. What I need to watch for in my life or any, any of the times when there is a red sign on the, in the lane I'm traveling that says wrong way. And my prediction is, my promise to you is, if I will listen to the voice of God, to his Holy Spirit, he will tell me when I'm going the wrong way. It's very interesting to me. I've had even some attitudinal tweaks lately where the Lord would say, now, you really don't need to go that way. It's very kind to me in saying it. But the point is well made. Man, your, your mind is going the wrong way. Turn around. So this idea, if I want to fix this locust infestation that he's describing, he says, you got to turn around and return. Go back. Go back. It's, it, it's, it's actually quite beautiful and, and, and loving and lovely. Now, uh, uh, repentance here is more than just an apology as described in Scripture. It involves a change of heart. Now, uh, let's see how it's depicted, especially in the Old Testament. By the way, it's depicted this way in the New Testament as well in a couple of spots. Cindy, would you mind read? Um, let me give you just a little bit of context. Cindy's going to read Genesis 37, 34. And in that passage is where um, Jacob, later named Israel, Jacob learns that his son Joseph, uh, he's been, by the way, Joseph, who was not 
killed, but he thinks he's been killed. It's when he learns that message, uh, he has this expression of utter grief. 37, Genesis 37, 34. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. What did he do? Tore his clothes. He ripped his tunic wide open. Why? Because he was in grief. Um, I remember, at that, as I was thinking about that gesture, that's, a, that's an ancient Israel, Israelite gesture. I don't know if it was from other cultures or not, but it certainly was part of Israelite culture. Uh, a, a period, you can read about it in, in the book of Esther. You can read about it in several places, especially in the Old Testament, where in the book of Job, where they were, uh, they were in grief, or they were saddened by something and they tear their clothes open. Um, the, the, the best uh, contemporary um, uh, memory I have of this was um, um, Anthony Quinn, Anthony Quinn playing Caiaphas, I think was the role he was playing, in the uh, Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. Now we watch this or parts of it a lot. Uh, typically at this time of year, because I just think it's a great depiction in some ways. Uh, they take a lot of liberties, so this is not an endorsement. But, but um, in Jesus of Nazareth, which was back, I'm going to guess, back in the 80s, I think, when, when Jesus of Nazareth came out. But Anthony Quinn was playing Caiaphas, and when he asked Jesus who he was and he admitted it, he tears his clothing. I mean, that's, that's a kind of a modern-day depiction of something ancient, but you kind of see it. What does it represent? And what is this talking about? The, the prophet here says, don't tear your clothes. Uh, that's a, it's kind of a funny picture of us. Can you imagine a teenager? Can you imagine a 16-year-old? Dad, I need the car keys tonight. You can't have the car keys tonight. <laughs> oh, woe is me. Okay? It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And the Bible says, you know, you don't need to rip your clothes. Larry used to do this all the time. Judy had the awfulest time keeping him in clothes. <laughs> He's that sensitive a guy. The Bible says here, the prophet says, don't tear your shirt. Rend what? Your heart. Your heart. Now let's see if we can kind of understand what that means. Um, real repentance will rip your heart open. Look at the second part of, uh, of 13 here. It says, return to the Lord, your, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. God's response is being described there to when you and I come to terms with our sin or with that wrong direction. The Bible says if, if you will be saddened by that, if that bothers you enough to let your heart be ripped, then God's response is really predictable here. God's response is slow. 
He's never going to have a knee-jerk reaction to your sin. He's going to wait for you. He's going to woo you. He's going to talk to you, listen to you. His response to you, catch this, is slow, patient. It's a knee-jerk reaction. His reaction to you is not rigid. I, I love that about him. And I'm grateful that he's not as rigid as I often am. Instead of being rigid, he's gracious. See that? Slow, gracious, abounding in love and mercy. Not knee-jerk, harsh, rigid. So I can afford to allow my heart be ripped open for the things that really matter because God is going to meet me in the right way upon that. Can I say something to you? Karen, you and I had a kind of a candid moment this morning and I appreciate your honesty. God doesn't give up on you very easily. Do you know that? God doesn't give up on you easily. Karen, your life, for years, you were going down the wrong road. And God continued to woo you through that whole time. God just doesn't, he's tenacious, relentless. Full of the compassion described here the loving kindness described here. I'm really glad that Rhonda didn't give up on me in 1977. You know? I'm really glad my folks didn't give up on me when I wasn't making the choices that they wanted me to make. And God hasn't given up on you either. Now, I want us to go to, if you will, with, go down to, uh, it's not in your lesson, but I want to kind of give you an overview of verse 18 and 19. Um, in verse 18 and 19, um, um, there is a word used here to describe God's relentless pursuit in love for you. It's the word jealous. Now look at it. Verse 18 and 19, <clears throat> chapter 2. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land. Now, does your Bible have the word jealous there? Okay, they are so close to the same meaning that in one Bible it may, may be translated jealous, in another one it's, it's translated zealous. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, he'll have pity on his people. Remember now, this was during the locust infestation. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied in full with them. And I'll never again make you a, pro a reproach among the nations. God's love is a jealous, but when I, I, we're not thinking about the kind of, kind of jealous that we sometimes read about in the newspaper that results in violent acts. God's jealousy, his, he is zealous for you. He is pursuing you in a caring way, a loving way. And he's saying, you know what? I know it looks really bad now, but there's a day coming. I can see it, he says, when the locusts are gonna be replaced replaced by agriculture, 
you know, he describes some, some agricultural things that are going to take place. He says, don't give up. I haven't given up on you. Just turn, he says. Now, let's go to um, somebody at our table over here with the mic. If you wouldn't mind, go to verse 28. We're going to jump down to verse 28 and read 28 down through 32. I love the way verse 28 begins to kind of set the pattern for us. It's going to say, after this. So there's a, the, another hopeful statement there. After this, this is coming. Or it will come about after this. So, um, Steve, would you read 28 down through 32? And then, afterward, there you go. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Okay. Interesting that Peter believes, and I'm going to make a, make a statement here in a little bit that will indicate Paul also believed this, that what's being talked about here beginning in verse 22, that after this, they both believed that this prediction was fulfilled, this prophecy was fulfilled 50 days after the resurrection weekend of Jesus that you and I read about in Acts 2. So here's where you and I need to go over to Acts 2 because Joel 2 is quoted in Acts 2, okay? Now, I want us to go to Acts 2, and I'm going to begin reading of verse 17. If, if your Bible is like mine, this whole paragraph is set off uh, in, in, in kind of capital letters. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. Now, I'm not even going to read it. I'm just going to want you to look at it. Look at 2.17 and see down through 21 how what is there is what Steve just read. Now, the context of this is that they were gathered together in one place with people from all over the world in Jerusalem for uh, the day of Pentecost for one of the, the Jewish high festivals. And if you remember what happened 50 days after the resurrection, uh, all heaven broke loose. Remember that? What happened? The Holy Spirit came down in dramatic and wonderful fashion. And by the way, that's a great use of the word wonderful or awesome. A lot of times we use wonderful to describe cheesecake and pizza, and that just didn't really apply, okay? Even though sometimes I kind of think that. It was filled with wonder and awe. People around thought, what in the world is going on? Peter believes, because he's, gonna, he's using Joel 2 in the context of his sermon on that day of Pentecost, the, what we would call the inauguration day of the church. He's going to use Joel 2 there because he, he believes today this has come about as uh, what Steve read to us a little bit ago. And he talks here, uh, back in Joel 2, so kind of keep your, keep your fingers going back and forth because we've got a couple places we want to look at here. Look at here. But as he begins in verse 28, as Joel begins here in verse 28, it's going to come about after this. 
I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. And it talks about things that are going to happen when that happens. Now, what you and I have got to recognize here is that what Joel is talking about, what Peter's recognizing, is a new reality. A new reality. Not some unlocking of hidden human potential inside. Can, can we think about that for just a minute? What Peter acknowledges, what Joel looks forward to, is that something is going to come down from heaven. Uh, better described, someone is going to come down from heaven. This is not uh, just you get enough uh, enlightenment and education or read enough books and you're going to unlock some hidden potential inside you. By the way, you can find lots of those books at Barnes & Noble. This is a, a new reality. It's a new day. The Spirit has come upon His people from above, not from within. This is a new presence inside them. It's His presence. Now, you and I could look at several places in the Old Testament. I put a reference or two in here, but on, on your outline. You and I could look at several places in the Old Testament. Uh, I think the one reference I put here was um, Gideon uh, when he acted on behalf of the nation as a judge. Samson, when he acted on behalf of the nation as a judge, it will say, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. It'll say that about David in places. But the Spirit came upon them sporadically and temporarily. Here, he comes upon them to stay. And he's still here. Inside you and me. In fact, if you understand anything that takes place in this class today, or when uh, Marty preaches in a little bit, or whoever preaches today, if, you, if any of it makes a connection to your heart, it will be because the Holy Spirit is inside you saying, saying See there? That's what I've been trying to tell you. That's what I've been trying to show you. If what I say connects between me and, and Howard Rose back there, it's because the Holy Spirit is brokering an, an interaction between the two of us, even though we're 50 feet apart. Or even if I'm just a couple of feet apart, like with Larry. He's inside you. This is not the unlocking of some inner human hidden potential. Okay? We hear a lot about that stuff. Ellie, you got you give me the evil eye here, but you know I'm right. Okay, that's the evil eye. Okay. We hear so much about what you need to do is read this book or or or, or do this exercise program, and the and a hidden potential will be unlocked within you. This is not that. This is the Lord's presence at work lovingly and wonderfully and awesomely inside your life. If I wanted to play golf like Jack Nicklaus, I could read books about him. I could uh, buy the videotape series Golf Jack's Way. But I never would completely be able to play exactly like Jack Nicholas. 
But what if he could occupy my body and my brain? He can't, and I will never play that way. But what if I said, how would you like to live the way Jesus lived? You can. You can. Because he lives inside you. In all of his majesty and power and strength. Through the Holy Spirit that was poured out here for the first time in this way in Acts 2. This is not a new reality, not some unlocking of hidden human potential inside. This is coming from above, not from within. This is a presence. This is his presence within you. Now, verse 29 is really important. I read a story this week about a student who was blind who sued a music college to challenge its requirement for sight-reading music. Now, that's just an interesting setup. Never read about this before. Uh, I read about another Christian university that received negative press because the admissions requirement included a weight limit. Overweight applicants claimed discrimination. School leadership believed that overweight applicants, and we're talking about morbidly obese people here, were neglecting the Christian stewardship responsibilities for their bodies. We live in an age where equal access is much debated. Virtually everyone agrees that people ought to be treated fairly, but the, the problem is when there's a di- disagreement on the boundary between the reasonable and the unreasonable accommodation. Some organizations still attempt to achieve proportional representation by the use of some kind of a quota, indicating that society hasn't really reached the point where it can take equal opportunity as a given. But Joel says, verse 29 that what is coming after this will be completely equal opportunity. Look at verse 29 again. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The word even means uh, it's gonna borderline on the absurd. Um, Cindy, can I get you to go to um, that Galatians passage right there? Galatians 3, uh, 28. He's gonna say here that the spirit is poured out on all When he uses the word servants here, you and I need to think slaves. So what is going to be poured out on on us, on them, is without class distinction. And then he says, even on men and women. It's without gender distinction. Now be careful what you do with that. It's really important that you catch that. Paul's going to be really... Uh, he's going to drill down this on this too and make, make sure to, that we catch the point. Uh, Galatians 3.28, we actually looked at this a few weeks ago. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. No distinction between class, between gender, between... Um, Station in life, age. The true gospel is without prejudice. And so is the giving of the Spirit. Now, verse 30 and 31, we read it a little, Steve read it a little bit, bit ago. You might recognize it. There was some controversy a couple years ago. I can't remember how far back because there was going to be this, uh, this lunar eclipse that was called the blood moon. You remember that? 
that comes out of Joel 2. It comes out of here, Joel 2, verse 30 and 31. And um, uh, it's, it's parenthetic in a lot of ways. And I've, I've, I've struggled this week to figure out, okay, how does this fit into the love of God? How does this fit into this conversation about the coming of the Holy Spirit? Fire often refers to judgment. Okay, you and I know that. Fire, um, um, we think of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, right? We think of Peter's prediction that when the end of the world comes, that this world will be burned up, he says, by a fervent heat. Okay, kind of got to put that in my mind. And, and there are some uh, modern day prophets who thought this blood moon thing would usher in some kind of cataclysmic judgment of God. But here, and in Acts 2, fire is used quite differently. How was fire used in the Old Testament during the time of the Exodus? I put a reference here. If you remember, fire went with them at night. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night representing God's presence with them. In Acts 2, there is this beautiful picture here, kind of a scary picture in some ways, in Acts 2 verse 3 of tongues of fire lighting on them as they gathered. Now, while that was awesome and marvelous and all of those things, and while they were taken back by it, was anybody hurt? They were empowered. They were empowered. They were, this, that was a representation, a physical representation of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So there's been some kind of confusion on here. But in context, the fire here is used differently. In Acts 2, it represents the Spirit coming upon us. Now, so there's some ways when the fire in my belly represents the presence of God and his activity within me, his motivation of me. He is making me zealous about the things for which he is zealous and jealous. Now, the last verse that we'll talk about, and then I want to do some backup. I'm going to, I'm going to pull one verse out in a minute to apply for us as we close. But look at verse 32, which has already been read. And it'll come to pass, or it'll come about, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Yours might say will be saved. This passage is more than just a promise to save ancient Israel from locusts. Both Peter and Paul see it differently. Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, quotes this. Paul quotes it. Go with me to Romans 10. If you've ever used part this as part of the Romans' road to salvation, if somebody ever taught you that, you may not have recognized that this is a nearly direct quote from the Old Testament, from, um, from actually Joel 2, right here. Paul and Peter both agree that something else is being presented here. It's being quoted here. Look at Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, raised him from the, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now jump down to verse 13, which is also in all caps, which means it's a quote. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Joel's original words. It seems to me 
that both Peter and Paul recognize that there is a confession that's required with my mouth. And for all who confess, it's about an eternal relationship with a loving, forgiving God. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, he says. Do you sense how wonderfully loving the end of this second chapter is? Now, go back to verse 12. I want to apply something as we, as we leave here in just a minute. Got, I've got five minutes left. I'm going to use every one of them. All right? Go to 2.12. We read a little bit ago. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. What do you do when you realize you're headed the wrong way? The prophet uses three words here in verse 12 that I want, that I want to kind of spend some time with here, okay? The first word is fasting. Uh, that idea is not just cutting out some kind of food. It's a self-denial, the idea of a self-denial that represents spiritual submission. So fasting here means I'm submitting to God. That's kind of that idea. The second word is weeping. It carries with it the idea of distress. The third word is mourning. So fasting, weeping, mourning. See all three of those in verse 12? When I realize I'm going the wrong way, those three things need to be a part of it. I need to submit to God in some way. It's calling for me to be submissive to him in some way. It's calling for me to grieve a bit, for me to mourn, to be in distress over my sin, over the direction of my life. There ought to be a sense when the Holy Spirit says to me, and by the way, how do I know? It's him, because he was given to me. He was given to you when I accepted Jesus as Savior. Ever since Acts 2, that's been the case. When he says to me, buddy, you're going the wrong way. Those three emotions ought to be a part of my next few minutes, of my next day or several days to turn around when I realize I'm headed the wrong way. Now, there's one verse in this chapter that we can't escape. I just don't want us to leave behind before we leave. Look down at verse 25. It wasn't even part of our lesson. Remember the bugs, the locusts, katydids, whatever they are? Can you hear them in your, I can hear them. I'm like that thing in my, you know. Summertime and, in Oklahoma, that's part of it. That's kind of the soundtrack of summertime in Oklahoma. What about all the stuff that the locusts tore up? If I'm them, I'm thinking, you know, I've got locusts, you know, when I open the oven, there's locusts in it. I'm wondering, okay, you're telling me this is going away, but what about all the stuff they've torn up? Look at verse 25. Then I will make up to you for the years the swarming locust has eaten. That's a promise to you. Even when I was going the wrong way, it's been marvelous to me to watch 
how God has more than made up for what the locusts ate. Remember? That was a symbol of judgment and retribution and when they were going the wrong way. Isn't it wonderful to know here? I'm asking the question here. Have the locusts taken away your joy? What are your locusts? And the word that's used, the the phrase that's used here in Joel 2.25 is so very important for me to understand because God says, I know you were going the wrong way and I know there's lots of pain that came as a result of that. I know there are a lot of things that, that you don't like about all that. But he says, these words, let me make it up to you. My human tendency would be to think, I've got to make it up to him. (laughs) Do you see how wonderfully gracious this is? I invited the locusts in my life, I could argue. And he says, I know you're worried about all those years that the locusts ate. Tell you what, come with me. I'll make those years up to you. I've seen him do it time after time after time after time. Next week, we're going to look at how loving Jesus, God is as a shepherd over my life in Psalm 23. I hope you'll join me. See you next week.